Good morning. My name is Amanda Chung. Today's scripture is from John 14, 1 through 14. Hear now Jesus' words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let's start right there, right at the end. John 14, 14, Jesus speaking. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I'm not sure about you, but in my own life, there isn't much that's more troubling than unanswered prayer. That verse one more time. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You encounter that verse, and so you get on your knees. Has anybody been there with me? With fervency and urgency, you pray. And yet, the job offer doesn't come. The sickness gets worse. The relationship stays broken. The beloved child remains wayward from faith. The grief The grief keeps jumping up and grabbing you, unannounced, unwanted, or a hundred thousand million other scenarios. If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, I imagine that you have your own story to tell of an answered prayer. And maybe you're with me when I experience that, when I reckon with this reality in my own life, it's so easy for my heart to give over to anxiety, to worry, to being troubled which I think is really understandable. The first thing we have to say about this is that it is hard. It is confusing. And yet, Jesus has a word to speak to our confused and anxious hearts. It's the bookend of this passage. We we started with the final verse. Now let's go to the first verse, right? We saw Jesus' invitation, plain invitation to bold prayer in verse 14, but where does he start this passage in John 14, 1. Here's what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. 
believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. And I think it's worth revisiting the context of this moment here, John 14, 1 as well. We should ask the question, what's happening in this section of Scripture that would provide the opportunity for Jesus to speak this word of comfort? I mean, who's he even talking to, right? And the answer is, he's talking to his disciples, and there is a lot going on in this moment. Just to reorient us, it's the Thursday night of the last week of Jesus' life, which means that later on this evening, he will be betrayed, arrested, and tried. And tomorrow, he will be crucified. He will be murdered, though innocent, killed, though he had done nothing wrong. And even though the disciples in the room don't yet know the fullness of the gravity of this situation yet, Jesus is starting to clue them in a little bit. Last week, Pastor Nathan did a great job unpacking the whole of John 13, which I'm really glad that he took us on a journey through all of that chapter. Because the beginning of John 13 is famous for the incredible story of Jesus serving his disciples by humbly washing their feet. And yet the rest of John 13, because that story is so well-known and famous, can sometimes get lost in the mix. But the rest of John 13 actually includes several more troubling elements as well. Like Jesus openly discusses the tragic reality that one of his disciples will betray him. Then he clearly states that he will soon be leaving his disciples and that they cannot come with him at this time to where he is going. And finally, the chapter ultimately concludes with Jesus rebuking Peter by foretelling his coming denials, which all of that bundled together makes great sense then, the context makes great sense of what we're looking at in John 14, 1, because trouble is in the air. Trouble's in the air, in the room. There's no break. Chapter and verses, those are helpful to us, but sometimes they can be a little bit distracting. No time has passed since Jesus has just confronted Peter about his coming denials. And here is how Jesus chooses to respond with the confusion and the anxiety and the worry and the trouble. And try to put yourself in the place of the disciples for a moment. Imagine being there and you hear that Peter, and Peter had his moments, but in, in many ways, Peter seems like the best among you the one who possessed the most faith and trust in Jesus, he's the one that actually was able to get out of the boat, right? Yeah, okay, then he started to sink, but you're sitting there as one of the other disciples and you didn't even have that trust and confidence be able to, and you hear from Jesus, you're in the room, you're like, not even Peter's gonna make it? Not even Peter's gonna make it? What chance do I have if not even Peter will make it? It's a troubling thought, isn't it? And in the face of that confusion, anxiety, worry, and trouble, Jesus tries to reverse the flow. He's, he's a salmon swimming upstream, right? This is what Jesus is doing. He senses the trouble, and he moves right towards it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Or I think we could sum it up this way. Jesus looks out at a troubled and anxious and worried and broken room, and he looks out at his closest friends and his followers, and he says, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay, is one of the ways I think we could summarize what Jesus is saying. And we need to talk about this for a moment, right? We need to sit in the, the reality of this because quite clearly, you're, you're with me already, right? Quite clearly, when Jesus says this, everything is decidedly not okay. Everything is quite broken, quite troubling, quite confusing. It's only going to get worse, right? And we all have this person in our lives, don't we? right? We all have this person, the person who means well, 
but who just can't read the room correctly? The person, maybe you've had someone well-meaning in your life say this exact phrase to you in your, most, in your moment of most broken desperation. When you were at your most not okayness, maybe you had someone in your life that said these exact words to you. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Like, is Jesus that guy or that gal? Is he that out of touch and insensitive? How, how is it that this, I, and I believe this, this can be a word of actual comfort for the room then and for this room here now, rather than just nails on the chalkboard? How is that possible? How can Jesus say this? Well, first, first, Jesus can say everything's going to be okay because he also says, I know where we're going. I know where we're going. As you might expect, Jesus legitimizes his word of comfort by what follows where it starts. We have to look at the next few verses to see how it's possible that Jesus can actually comfort us with a saying like this, everything's going to be okay. And this statement, this next statement from Jesus, this next summary statement from him, I know where we're going, this gets at what we see in verses 2 and 3 of our passage. So look back there with me. Here's what Jesus says, after reversing the flow of the trouble in the room, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in me, believe, uh, believe, in, the, believe in God, believe also in me, and here's verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So here, Jesus is using the metaphor of a house to talk about heaven, and his emphasis is on how his actions in the coming days will create ample space in the house for anyone and everyone to be able to join him. When he says that he will go to prepare a place for you, he is referencing his impending death, resurrection, and ascension, what's coming in the next few days and weeks. And by those acts, Jesus is going to open up a way to the Father's house. But he comes back too, doesn't he? Notice that with me. He doesn't stay away. I go, yes, I go now. I will go now to prepare a place, yes, he says. But I will also come again and take you to myself, that where you are, I may, that where I am, you may be also. You see, church, paradoxically, don't miss this. Paradoxically, Jesus leaves... Jesus leaves in order to be with us. He leaves us in order to be with us. I leave now for a little while, but I'm coming back. And when I do, I'll stay with you forever, never to leave again. Jesus here is referencing his second coming. He's referring ahead to that blessed moment when he will finally return to unite heaven and earth together as one, to right every wrong, to bind everything that's broken, to straighten everything that is crooked. He looks ahead and he says, everything is going to be okay because I know where we're going. Not just me because I'm coming back to get you where we're going. And notice with me what Jesus is doing. To legitimize his word of comfort that everything is going to be okay, he begins with the end in mind. Jesus begins with the end in mind which I'll be the first to admit it, that's hard for us to do, isn't it? It's hard for us. In fact, I'd say it's almost impossible for us to do. And here's why. Simple reason why it's hard for us to begin with the end in mind. We don't know the end. 
Left to my own capacity, I don't know what's going to happen in the next minute, much less at the end of time. And neither do you. Just like me, none of us possess that capacity in our own strength and power, but church, Jesus does. As God, He possesses a unique ability to know where all of this is heading. He knows the end, and so He begins with it. Jesus begins with the end in mind, and so generously, He does not hold that to Him, hoard that to Himself. He doesn't hold it with grubby hands. In fact, He generously shares it with each and every single one of us. In my own ability, in your own ability, we cannot see past the present second, but by way of the generous grace of Jesus, I know and you know and we know together where all of this is headed. It's headed towards a remade heaven and earth. It's headed toward the destruction of sin, suffering, and sadness. It's headed toward the reversal of every wrong that has ever been committed. That's where all of this is wrapping up and heading. It's hard, almost impossible for us to see. It would be impossible for us to see if not for the generous grace of Jesus to share it with us here and in other places. He begins with the end in mind. And I know it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. And importantly, here's the other piece of this. The truth of where all of this is headed does not minimize the severity of whatever suffering that you are, have, or will experience in this life. It doesn't minimize or make light of or cancel out. That's not how it works. When Jesus says everything is going to be okay, he's not saying everything is okay right now. Jesus entered into the brokenness of our world and experienced it in full, the shattered, deep suffering and brokenness of this world. And therefore, he possesses remarkable empathy toward each and every one of us who are on our own journey of suffering and sadness. This week, I finally completed my read-through of the book Gentle and Lowly by Pastor Dane Ortland. I, I nibbled my way through this book over the course of several months, which I actually think was a really great way to approach this book. It was really impactful as a slow burn. And I'm reading it Friday morning as I'm wrapping up my sermon. And in the final chapter, I came across this remarkable quote. Here's what Dane Ortland writes. Those in union with Christ are promised that the haunted brokenness, which that phrase arrested me, the haunted brokenness that infects everything, Every relationship, every conversation, every family, every email, every awakening to consciousness in the morning, every job, every vacation, everything, the haunted brokenness that affects everything, those in union with Christ are promised that one day it will be rewound and reversed. Rewound and reversed. The more darkness and pain we experience in this life, the more resplendence and relief in the next. As a character says in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, reflecting biblical teaching, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. For those not in Christ, this life is the best it will get. For those in Christ, this life is the worst that it will ever get. Friends, as your pastor, I have had the deep honor and privilege of knowing just some, just a sliver of the specific haunted brokenness that some of you are navigating and have navigated. And I don't for one millisecond 
want any of you to think that I'm telling you that what you are going through isn't that bad or hard or difficult. I'm not. Instead, I'm only trying to, with Jesus, in partnership with Jesus, trying to raise our vision together to look up and see what's coming for us. Everything is going to be okay, Jesus says, because I know where we're going. I know where we're going. I have the ability to begin with the end in mind. And I'm not going to hold that to myself. I'm going to share it with you. And you have a choice to join me in looking up to that extraordinary vision where everything wrong will be made right, every brokenness will be rewound and reversed and turned into a glory. That's what Jesus says. First, everything is going to be okay because I know where we're going. But second, he says, I am everything that you need. Everything is going to be okay because I am everything that you need. And you may have noticed in the quote from Gentle and Lowly that the key differentiator between those who will have their wrongs reversed and those who won't, what did he say? He says, those who experience union with Christ. Union with Christ is the differentiator. That's what Dane Ortland says. Or, or I think we find the same teaching here in this passage in John 14. As we sum up the next few verses, I think we can do it in this way. I am everything that you need. Let's start again in verse 4 where we left off and read through verse 6. Jesus says, and you know to the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, remember with me that Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, his second coming as well, those are at the center of the first three verses of this chapter. In that place, Jesus introduces and teaches about these coming events with the use of metaphor, which was really, really typical and common for him. And we see here now in verses 4 through 6 how that approach results in some understandable confusion from his disciples. When Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going, his point is that the disciples know the way because they know him. All of it centers around Jesus and these particularly in the room, these people particularly in the room, they've just spent the past three years with him in intimate communion and fellowship. At this moment, they knew him better than anyone else. So his point in verse 4 is not, it's, it's not quite literal, right? It's, it's more, hey, all of this is about me and you know me, so you know the way. And yet even with that intimate communion and fellowship, they still struggle. They still lack understanding. As Thomas's reply and question in in verse 5, makes clear Jesus takes it so literally, I mean, Thomas takes it so literally there, which is, again, really understandable. And you can almost hear the worry and trouble in his voice, can't you? Like, Jesus, before you leave, make sure to text us the address. It's like, it's like that's sort of the sense that you get from Thomas. Like, wait, I didn't, did we, was that in a different text thread? Like, I see, I missed that. Was I not on that one? Like, I don't have the address, right? Like, that's how Thomas takes us. And this, this moment of really relatable confusion from Thomas, it sets us up for one of Jesus' most famous declarations in all of Scripture, John 14, 6. I am, I am, Jesus says, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And listen, in a modern moment where this is increasingly unpopular, we must be crystal clear that part of what this declaration means is that there can be no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Salvation comes exclusively through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, okay, it's also important to remember that this claim from Jesus has always been unpopular. It's not just something in our modern moment. This has always been divisive teaching from Jesus. And honestly, in many ways, this self-elevated exclusivity from Jesus is what got him killed on the cross. That, though, his self-elevated exclusivity and his radical inclusivity... Have you ever thought about that? About how simultaneously Jesus is both radically exclusive and radically inclusive? Okay, John 14, 6 does make clear it's his exclusivity on radical, plain display. But his inclusivity is also on plain display in how he structured and engaged his ministry. How he bent it toward the outsider, toward the forgotten, toward the downcast, toward what he says in Matthew 25 is the least of these. Anyone can be saved, Jesus shouts inclusively with both his teaching and his ministry. But they have to get it from me, Jesus also shouts exclusively with both his life and his teaching. Have you ever thought about this? And if you, right, it does break your brain a little bit, but sit in it for a moment and I imagine the conclusion that you'll come to. It is a brilliant and it is a beautiful combination, a brilliant and beautiful combination from Jesus. And again, if it breaks your brain a little bit, as it does mine, friends, we're in good company. We are in good company with the first disciples, with the first, with the first disciples, the first followers of Jesus. We've already seen in this passage Thomas get tripped up, and now, right after Jesus' declaration, sweet Philip displays some more really relatable confusion. Verses 8 and 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus answered him, have I been with you for so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now remember, again, overall in these verses, Jesus is saying, everything is going to be okay because I am everything that you need. And it's interesting to me and relatable to me that Philip seems to doubt that a little bit. That's how I read these verses. Like, really, Jesus? Like, only you? What about the Father? Show us the Father, and that would, I think that would be enough. That would be enough. I know you're the Messiah, I know the Father sent you, but, but show us the Father. And Jesus replies, no, Philip, I am. I am enough. Because if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. I am everything that you need. In fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when it comes to that triad of Jesus claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life, which particularly truth and life have been themes that we've seen in the Gospel of John, even back into the prologue, uh, and John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He speaks to Mary and Martha, the, the, the sisters of Lazarus, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So there have been threads of themes that have been throughout the Gospel of John. 
uh, and they're kind of bringing, John's like bringing them and Jesus is bringing them to a, to a beautiful, like winded conclusion right here. Uh, and, and I don't think anyone has better summarized and applied these words than Thomas Akempis, who wrote this in the 1300s. His famous work is Imitation of Christ, and here is what he writes about this famous verse in John 14. You, follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. You, you follow me. Everything is going to be okay, Jesus says, because I am everything that you need. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's all-encompassing, and it all centers around and in me. But how do we respond? How do we respond? Jesus has given us these two reasons why everything is going to be okay. I think that he has legitimized his word of comfort. It's not nails on the chalkboard. Jesus can say everything is going to be okay. He uniquely knows where we're all going, and he uniquely knows that he's the way to get there. So he can say everything is going to be okay, but how do we respond? Thankfully, this passage contains two next steps of response as well, and I want to explore them with you together. Everything is going to be okay, so keep trusting and praying. Everything is going to be okay, so keep trusting and praying. You remember verse 1? Let not your hearts be troubled. Everything's going to be okay. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We've talked before how belief in the gospel of John is more than just mental agreement with a particular idea. Believe in John is more all-encompassing than that. It's more active and participatory than that. And another way the word in the original language can be translated is trust. Trust, which helps us engage our response a bit better, I think. In our moments of deep anguish and trouble, Jesus wants us to fall back on him. Do you remember trust falls, right, when you were a kid? Jesus wants us to trust fall back on Him. Jesus wants us to depend on Him. Jesus wants us to rely on Him. Everything's going to be okay, Jesus says. Just keep trusting me. And brilliantly then, this passage builds to and concludes with one of the best ways that we can trust Jesus and keep trusting Jesus. This passage builds to and concludes with the next step response of prayer. That's verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is where we started our sermon this morning, isn't it? Wrestling together, wrestling together with the trouble and challenge of unanswered prayer. And again, I'll be the first to admit it that these verses from Jesus, they can be hard to read and engage. In my own life personally and in my ministry as a pastor, I have experienced the unique sting of unanswered prayer. And I want to create space here for us this morning to wrestle with the mysterious reality of that. I think ignoring it doesn't do us any good. 
But I also want to aim to be helpful by, by way of offering some interpretation of Jesus' invitation to us to keep praying with His particular language, right? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Does Jesus mean anything, right? If you ask me anything in my name, does Jesus mean anything? What's going on there? I want to offer some interpretation. The key, I think, is found in the phrase, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Importantly, we have to remember that this phrase is not some magical incantation where we can say whatever we want in a prayer and, oh, we'll surely receive it as long as the final words that we pray are, in Jesus' name, amen. Certainly, I don't think it's wrong for those to be the final words of a prayer, but this is not a Harry Potter spell, okay? As much as I love Harry Potter. And actually, I think maybe better than anyone else, the ancient church father, Augustine, drives accurately to the center of meaning of these words. And then by extension, he drives accurately, I think, to the center of meaning of these verses at the end of John 14, uh, 1 through 14, and he helps us know how to respond. So what's happening here? Augustine writes, the name is Christ Jesus. Christ signifies King, Jesus signifies Savior. Therefore, whatever we ask for that would hinder our salvation, we actually do not ask for in our Savior's name. And yet, He is our Savior not only when He does what we ask, but also when He does not. You see, when He sees us ask anything to the disadvantage of our salvation, He actually shows Himself our Savior by not doing it. The physician knows whether what the sick person asks for is to the advantage or disadvantage of their health. And the physician does not allow what would be harmful to them, though the sick person himself desires it. Instead, the physician looks to the final cure. Hitting a slightly different angle on this tension that I know we all feel, pastor and author Tim Keller says this. He says, God always answers your prayers precisely in the way you want them to be answered if you knew everything that He knew. Let me say that one more time. God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you want them to be answered if you knew everything that He knew. Which really gets at the knowledge gap that we covered earlier, right? Jesus knows where, we, he were, where we're going. And Jesus knows that fundamentally what we all actually ultimately need is Him. But we, on the other hand, in our own limited understanding, we don't know anything beyond the right now, the in this moment, the in this second. And we also, isn't this true, we also so quickly and so often forget that our ultimate need is Christ Jesus, don't we? And as a result of that lack of true knowledge, we regularly find ourselves praying for things that actually are outside of accordance with our salvation. And thus, it is God's grace to us when He replies no. Or when He replies not yet. A prayer deferred is not a prayer denied. A prayer deferred is not a prayer denied. And all the while, while we keep praying, that's the call, right? That's the next step. That's the response. Keep praying. What we're doing is we are taking a next step of faith. We are taking a next step of trust. We are taking a next step of belief. And we are finding our hearts and souls and lives are shaped by that practice and by that continual next step that we take into prayer. 
Because as we go over and over and over and over again to prayer, what we do, we receive Jesus. And as we receive Jesus, our ultimate need, that is how we are formed and shaped and made more and more into the likeness of Him. You see, by receiving Him, this is how God often answers our prayers. We ask for a spouse or a better marriage, and He says, here I am. We ask for a child or for our children's protection, and He says, here I am. We ask, we pray for relief from our pain, sadness, and suffering, and He shows up in His fullness, and He says, here I am, here I am, here I am. Receive me, trust in me. Everything's going to be okay. I know where we're going, and I am everything that you need, and you can have me. So that's it. Two reasons and a response. Jesus says this to us, everything is going to be okay because he knows where we're going, and he knows that he is everything that we need, and so he invites us, keep trusting me. And if you've never trusted me before, make today, make now your first step of trust toward me. If you've already trusted me, keep doing it. And keep praying. Don't cease. Keep praying. Keep trusting. And listen, I I know, right? Everything is going to be okay. If a politician tells me this, I'm probably going to roll my eyes. If I hear this on the news, I'm going to wonder what the angle is and how they're trying to make more money and and keep my attention. If I hear it from a well-meaning friend, I'll be grateful that they tried to encourage me, but I'll be frustrated because they don't know the depth of what I'm going through. But when Jesus says this, the sovereign God of the universe who made you, who made me, who loves you, who loves me, who came here to be with you and is coming back to be with us again forever and evermore, remaking all wrongs, straightening all crooked paths, if Jesus says that it's going to be okay, church, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Now, as we close, I want to give us, it feels appropriate, right, to give us actually just like a minute of silence. Why? So that we can wrestle with God in prayer. I return often to Jacob's wrestling with God in prayer in the Old Testament as a a sort of means and metaphor for what I do, what we do in prayer. We're wrestling with God in prayer, and I want to create just a little bit of space for us to be able to do that here in the service so that we can actually together as one and as individuals take this next step to keep trusting in Jesus and keep praying. So I want to turn to that next step now, and I want to prompt us to do so and guide us to do so by Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, in my trouble, in my heartache, in my confusion, in my brokenness, in my doubts, in my fear, In my terror, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Take about a minute in prayer.
Father and God, thank you so much for Jesus and for how he is uniquely able to speak this word of comfort. These words, everything's going to be okay, fall short from anyone else other than, than your son Jesus. So thank you that he encourages our hearts to not be troubled. I know that that does not mean that there is not trouble in this room. I know there is unique anguish and distress and worry and anxiety. But we can also trust that everything is going to be okay because you know where all of this is headed. Your son Jesus is everything that we need. So I bind up the prayers that were offered in this room over this past minute. You know you heard every single word for even the sitting in silence. You heard it and you saw it. You hear us and you see us. So I bind them up together, broken as they may be, insufficient as they may be, and we lay them at the feet of Jesus, our great mediator, who binds them and takes them to you. Thank you again for him. And it is in his name that we pray and all God's people said together, amen. Well, church, this doesn't have to be the end of prayer in the service. We've had a prayer station available on 